Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Anne-Marie from the My Wall Street analyst teams. Today, we're talking about the big players in the EV industry that aren't Tesla, why Stoneco and Bumble keep getting beaten down, and how much emphasis we put on share price when investing in a company. So guys, happy Thanksgiving. And Marie, I'm glad as our resident American, you joined us on the podcast today. Is there not some sort of labor laws, though, that we're violating having you on the podcast recording on Thanksgiving Day? Well, unfortunately for me, I'm employed in Ireland, so I don't get the day off. But I guess in exchange, I get far more annual leave than I would ever get in the United States. So I think it's okay. <laughs> it's really, really the pros and cons. Are you doing anything nice for, for your Thanksgiving? Uh, no, I'm going to do Thanksgiving dinner on Sunday. I have yet to pick out a dessert because I did pumpkin pie like the last two years and and like a lot of my friends came to me recently and they were like, oh, we, we don't want to eat pumpkin pie anymore. They're yeah. like, it's too wet. I was going to say, I, I really, I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I really don't rate American desserts. I remember trying sweet potato pie mm. and I'm still traumatized <laughs> about five years later from it. Yeah. It's yeah. I don't know what sort of psychopath came up with that dessert. Why are we even doing this podcast? Surely no one's going to be listening on, you know, the day after Thanksgiving. Well, like their national national battle royale for a flat screen. Day. <laughs> they need something to listen to while they wait in line outside in the cold. Yeah, our, our soothing tones will calm them down before they go in and beat someone over the head with a flat screen TV. Amory, here's a question for you. Why do they need a TV every year? It seems to be the same people. Um, do, they exp- do they run out of gas after like a year in America? They have to rotate them through their house, through their through their rooms. <laughs> so like the best TV goes in the living room, and then they like rotate them around. Apparently, like on average, Americans have four TVs in their homes. Four TVs. Yeah, that, that's excessive. Maybe we should start researching some TV companies. Yeah, well, so if you are listening to us, it's probably Black Friday now. So I hope your uh, shopping experience is going well, which is probably just sitting at home on the couch on your laptop. We ran out of time on last week's podcast, though, so let's get straight into business today. And there's been a lot of talk about the burgeoning electric vehicle market over the past few years. But I think things have really quickened pace in the past few weeks, not least thanks to the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow a few weeks ago. At this uh, group of companies that included us here in Ireland, the UK, Canada, some US cities like San Francisco and Seattle, they all signed an agreement to transition to 100% zero emission sales of new cars and vans by as early as 2035, so just a little over a decade's time. Some of the key countries like US and China were missing, and also due to the fact that not being a legally binding agreement, it still seems like this kind of these new resolutions have quickened the demise of the internal combustion engine as we turn towards greener transport solutions. And obviously, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about Tesla in the past. But considering this kind of global shift towards EVs and EV solutions, I think it won't really be a zero sum game. So what I asked you guys to do today was to chat about some of the other EV makers in the space that aren't Tesla to see what that landscape is like out there. And Rhea, I'm going to come to you first. Is there any particular EV companies beyond Elon Musk and Tesla? that you're looking at at the moment kind of this was an interesting question to me because 
I hadn't really looked at like the up and comers, like the the startups. Yeah. And so I took a bunch of time yesterday and kind of went and had a look and made a little comparative chart between like Rivian, Lucid, Neo, and then like Apple's kind of speculative vehicle that might be in the works. And that kind of process really highlighted for me that I actually don't know that much about how hard it is to manufacture a vehicle. Like that was what the process highlighted to me. I was like, okay, if they have a concept car, if they have, you know, a hundred successful cars on the road, like what does that actually mean for like the long-term prospect of the business? And so I kind of dived into that mainly because like every time I've ever written like a piece about Ford, for example, for one of our products, it always comes along with this like necessary preamble that's always like, remember that car manufacturing is a low margin, complicated business that must be performed and perfected at scale. And we always kind of have to say that in terms of Ford and GM and Volkswagen, but we like never, ever discuss that in terms of EVs. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of made me realize, okay, like, how difficult will it be for a startup that maybe only has a couple vehicles in the work to kind of get itself to scale? And I ended up reading a piece called Who Will Win the EV Race by Anne Stevenson-Yang in Forbes. And she had this very interesting quote, which was, most of the startups are not stumbling over developing complex technologies like the battery or the automated driving system, but over integrating them. Building a car is one of the most complicated industrial processes in the world, involving lengthy qualification processes for hundreds of suppliers and tens of thousands of parts with price negotiations that keep margins brutally slim. Yeah. And And it basically means that for a lot of these automakers, the process of ramping up at scale is going to be really, really difficult. And this is something that Elon Musk actually spoke about earlier when he was talking about Tesla in 2017 and 2018 and he said the thing is it is remarkable that tesla did not go bankrupt in reaching volume production and he was referencing you know these famous images that came out of tesla in 2017 where they had an assembly line in the parking lot covered by a tent because they could not afford to build another building to in order to ramp up production enough to meet their targets for the year yeah And basically, it means that the traditional approach that many automakers have taken is they have established production facilities, and now they're basically trying to adapt their existing production facilities to also build EVs rather than having to build completely new factories, because it apparently costs $2 billion to make a factory big enough to produce 240,000 vehicles. And a car company needs to produce at least 100,000 vehicles to even be considered maybe profitable. And so this is a really difficult thing for these up-and-coming car makers to do, and so it really does kind of put the ball in the court of these legacy players. One of the big things we talked about with Ford when Ford announced the F-150 Lightning, which is their electric vehicle, is that the body and the frame and all of the add-ons for that car are identical to its traditional gas-using counterpart, which means that in terms of manufacturing, in terms of negotiating prices, in terms of negotiating with suppliers, it's a much, much, much easier process, and it means that they can ramp up to scale much quicker than some of these startups. Even though these startups might have very impressive technology, because of that and because their limits on manufacturing, it means their prices are really, really high. Every single company I looked at, their starting vehicle was over $65,000, which is far and away considered a luxury vehicle in the United States and is out of reach for the vast majority of people buying cars. And do you think the, the modern investor might be, be missing that kind of this point? You know, we, we talk about Tesla quite a lot and other car makers like Rivian and Neo, notably, you know, was one of those stocks that went up multiple fold in quite a short space of time. And, you know, these EV makers are often treated like we see other growth stocks like SaaS companies, for example, or, or wider software, which are high margin, very, very easily scalable businesses. Do you think that, you know, investors are maybe underestimating the difference in business model between these companies, but treating them the same in terms of investments? 
Yeah, I think definitely. And I think probably the reason for that is Tesla. Like Tesla has set this standard that, well, we're going to build electric vehicles, but then we're also going to have all these add-on services. So Tesla in the future wants to be able to sell you Tesla insurance and wants to make your car completely automated so that it can go off and drive itself as a taxi when you're not using it. And it wants to sell you the solar panels to go on your house to charge your vehicle. And it wants to add on all these additional services, which probably have much better margins. And in their head, they're probably thinking, right, for every car that we sell, could we get 10 years of recurring revenue out of that car out of that person. But Tesla now has the advantage because they have the established manufacturing facilities and they have the brand awareness and they have the cars to sell from some of these smaller makers. I think they're going to run into an issue of, of they can go to investors and they can say, hey, like we could have subscription revenue in 10 years, but first we need to figure out how we're going to make the cars to sell to people. Yes. Um, Selling the actual product that's... itself is, is the first obstacle to overcome and it's quite a big obstacle. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that investors kind of very eagerly overlook. And I think as we, particularly this year and probably last year, we began to see a lot of old school kind of car makers begin to bring electric vehicles to market. And a lot of them undercut these smaller companies on price. And maybe the vehicle isn't as kind of luxurious or doesn't have as many kind of cool add-ons. But I think when it comes to the vast majority of people, when they buy cars, I don't think they want to spend $65,000 on a car. I think they want to spend, you know, probably in the range of 20000 And that means they're either going to wait for a used vehicle or, you know, car companies are going to have to compete to bring their prices down. Absolutely. So are there any EV makers out there, upstarts or kind of old legacy players that are particularly singing to you at the moment? Well, I thought it was interesting, not that it's a startup, but Apple's car, I think, will be interesting to see how they're going to integrate their technology with another car manufacturer. Apple is not interested in like building a manufacturing facility and going and, you know, designing the frame of the car themselves. They want to outsource that completely. And I thought that was really interesting. I think that'll be a benefit to their pricing and their ability to be competitive. I like Rivian in terms of a startup. I think Going after the truck market, I think, is smart because people who are com- who are prepared to spend money on trucks like have a higher price ticket. You know, I think the Ford F one fifty is the most popular vehicle in the United States, and people buy them new, and they are willing to spend forty five thousand dollars on them. And Rivian's starting price right now is sixty seven thousand, which is a bit high. But if they could begin to get that price down, if they could take advantage of some tax cuts, they might be competitive in the kind of truck SUV Jeep area. I know they also are trying to push into kind of Sprinter vans and yeah. and and that sort of thing. So yeah, that was kind of the most interesting startup that I looked at was Rivian. I think they're kind of had the clearest picture of what their target market was going to look at. I also thought Lucid was quite interesting in terms of they have a tremendous range on all of their vehicles. Like their 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 entry level vehicle can go 520 miles on a full charge wow. and they, they're the fastest charging electric vehicle ever to be produced because they have this incredible impressive battery and all that. And I thought from a technology standpoint that was really really cool, but it means that their price tag is hefty. They're over $80,000 for a car. And I was kind of thinking, well, it's it's great that you have this tremendous range, but if we're you know going to be in the future in five and ten years, and we might have this massive charging infrastructure be built into the United States and all around the world, is having this incredible long range is that going to be the most important thing to consumers? And I'm not really sure if it's going to be. Yeah, interesting, Rory. What about yourself? What EV makers are you looking at at the moment? Yes, yeah, so this is an area that I don't spend a huge amount of time on. I've never really been that focused on EVs or automakers, and Emmett's always been the real kind of Tesla bull my Wall Street, but I, I did look at Rivian closely and I thought it was quite interesting their their kind of breakup with Ford that happened was it last week they announced that. Yeah. What was interesting about that I think was that 
Rivian it kind of sold or well at least I'd kind of been sold in Rivian as being this kind of almost like a platform company like they built someone described it as like a skateboard and you could essentially kind of use this skateboard to build any other sort of car onto and that kind of was what it was interesting me about about Rivian that it was sort of more of a platform than a than an actual automaker <laughs> and this was how they were going to you know build their they were going to say they're going to build those trucks for Amazon and Ford they were essentially Ford's partnership with them was to make the electric Lincoln what that kind of split said to me was that a first of all Ford have progressed to the point now where they don't need the platform yeah. they've they've gotten to their point now where they know how to do it themselves and that was that was always going to happen you know I mean, that deal was struck two years ago so maybe it's just become you know it's becoming more commoditized the other thing that struck me was that Ford um, now have a massive share in Rivian, which has gone up substantially since they invested in it. I think when they invested in it, they were buying it. I think the average price is something like $8 a share. That holding in Rivian, which they no longer need because they're no longer partners, is potentially worth, I think, something like $12, $13 billion at the moment. Wow. That's a huge amount of money for them to inject into building their own electric vehicles. And I think people are overlooking for it massively like as i marie said the f-150 is the best-selling truck in the united states but not only that it's been the best-selling truck and best-selling vehicle in the united states for 43 years yeah it's incredible. that's an insane amount of you know being the best at something or or at least being the best seller you rarely see that kind of uh, consistency with these things and i think even though ford stock has kind of quadrupled from its lows i still think ford is one of the more interesting plays in this space considering as Amory said, all the kind of the technical know-how they have, all the provenance they have in terms of building vehicles to begin with, and just you know, just their brand as well, and this this Ford one fifty, uh, Ford F one fifty love that's out there for them. So that's kind of the more interesting play right now, I think. Yeah, they often get dismissed as kind of the the granddad at the party compared to the likes of Tesla and, and those smaller ones. But I think Amory, when you mentioned there the the infrastructure that's needed in these factories to build these machines it's a much dirtier kind of business than the the sexy software stuff we usually talk about yeah definitely and it, it's definitely just something that we're all kind of overlooking because we are in this kind of period of rapid expansion and i think that's understandable i think investors have gotten used to you know big software companies and recurring revenue and ex expecting companies you know to increase their valuation tenfold in five years or whatever but yeah i just i think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit with cars like a car still has to be still has to be built and still has to be sold before you can, you know, sell someone an autonomous driving subscription for 15 years. Well, you can just put it at the top of the hill and roll it down and video it and re <laughs> do a nickel on it. <laughs> I'm surprised they weren't <laughs> mentioned there. Let's move on then. So we're long-term buy and hold investors here at My Wall Street, which means that as much as we can, we try not to let the short-term news cycles affect our investing strategy. However, the past few weeks on the market have been brutal, to say the least. And even the most seasoned investors have surely felt a bit of panic so there are two poorly performing stocks in particular that I want to ask you guys about. But before that, Rory, I want to get your perspective on the market as a whole at the minute. Both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq are both pointing up and to the right. But individual stocks, particularly last year's growth stocks, are getting hammered. Is it still just a case of a difficult comps? Last year was so good that they could never live up to it this year. Well, I think we knew this was going to be a tough earnings season. I think even before before it started, I think we said that you know those that we were coming up against difficult comps. But I don't think it's just that. I mean, I think you have a trifecta of issues pretty much impacting every business, but particularly hitting those high growth stocks, those you know those high price to sell multiple stocks. 
You've got supply chain issues, which brings, which includes kind of this never-ending semiconductor shortage, and now kind of staff shortages with you know the great resignation. You have inflation. Is it transitory? Is it not? And then you have this reopening, or in our case, the not reopening, because you know we've got another wave happening across Europe at the moment. So all of this is going to have massive impacts in terms of you know travel how's it going to impact travel how's it going to impact tech how's what's remote work going to look like these are all things that are just causing great uncertainty and you know it's it's caused this huge correction in some stocks now of course look we've had these downturns before we've had these downturns with these particular stocks before you know this these are always the stocks that hit that have these big corrections and they always feel very scary at the time but, you know, we always kind of try and just focus on the long term with this stuff. And Marie, another stock that's having a bad time of it lately is Bumble, down more than 55% from its year-to-date highs. You added Bumble to the shortlist back in July based on its strong performance despite the pandemic last year. What's going on with the company now, do you think? Well, we kind of had a couple of dings on its latest quarterly report. So their total paying users dropped ever so slightly to 2.87 million, down from 2.93 million. However, the vast majority of this kind of decline in users was mainly concentrated in Badoo, which is the secondary product that Bumble owns. Badoo is mainly concentrated in continental Europe. It's not as popular in the United States or kind of elsewhere. Mm. And Europe has had kind of a lot a lot of uncertainty, I would say, in terms of economies reopening, you know, date venues being open and that sort of thing. So that has impacted them. And then on top of that, Bumble's kind of core product, its namesake, female-oriented dating app, uh, didn't tally as many paid users as they were expecting. They had 60,000 and they were kind of expecting 87,000, which was a bit of a, a, a minor shock to investors. And then I think kind of the crowning glory of this was the fact that Match Group came out with a pretty stunning quarterly report mm. where they had added 800,000 new paid users. And so I think it just kind of became an apples and apples comparison and people got a little bit panicked but you do have to remember match is like a much 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 larger company that basically buys out any kind of successful dating app that they can see and that just means that they just have access to so many more markets whereas bumble is very much a developing story they want to bring this concept of female empowerment within online dating into new markets and they're in the process really of only just launching in continental europe they're still kind of negotiating what's the best way to enter new cultures and economies and societies and so they're still very much a developing story so I wasn't too spooked by it because, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, this quarter, they had revenue growth of 39% year over year, which is still tremendous. So obviously, they're doing a very good job at monetizing the users that they do have. I would expect things to kind of be inconsistent as we continue to see if and when economies and societies are going to reopen. But yeah, I think it was just a combination of a miss in terms of new users and then a a very long shadow from match group coming up behind them. Yeah. And you mentioned there, like the, the, I suppose, the care that Bumble takes into moving into new countries and new cultures and I think I remember it was in your write-up that you mentioned how Bumble has moved into India can you speak to that a bit it seems Mm -hmm. to me that Bumble's real growth story is outside the US and in these kind of underserved international markets yeah, definitely. They moved into Bumble. It was something like a two-year process to get them into Bumble. And the whole first year, all they were doing was doing research, was doing surveying, yeah. was speaking to local experts, and trying to figure out what was the best way, the most appropriate way to launch the product there. And I think it was very thoughtful. And then it meant that the app was very, very well received. They had they added in a whole host of new safety and privacy features. And then 
really leaned upon the non-dating um, aspects of the Bumble app. So people tend to forget that that Bumble is dating, but it's also Bumble Biz, which is kind of like a LinkedIn, I guess, but it's like much less formal. It's kind of just for like networking and um, meeting up with other people that might be working in your field to, you know, get advice yeah. or hang out or that type of thing. And then they also have Bumble Friends, which I know has been quite successful in the United States, actually, of particularly when young people might get transferred to a new city for work and they don't have any friends and they just want to, you know, meet up with people and like have people to talk to. And so they really relied on those kind of other assets going into India. And it meant that they had tremendous success. I believe in the write-up, there's a statistic where it's something like 40% of users in India use more than one of Bumble services. And so that was very successful. And I think they're just trying to recreate that within new regions that it highlights and identifies as being good opportunities for them. Yeah. So I'm interested to see them kind of launch throughout the rest of continental Europe. I believe they went into Germany this quarter. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. And that obviously then opens up doors for them to go into other countries around them, like Austria and Hungary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to go to the other elephant in the room, I suppose we can call it Rory Stoneco. As we record, Stoneco is down about a whopping 80% off its year-to-date highs. We spoke about Stoneco a few weeks ago on the podcast, and especially the impact that the its lending arm, I think it's called Stoneco Capital or Stone Capital, and the kind of the temporary pause of that business has had on operations. Is that still the case? Because the stock doesn't seem to be stopping. So the Stoneco situation is an incredibly complex one. And when complexity and uncertainty combine, that tends to cause massive panic in investors. Yeah. Stoneco, you know, as this is be aware, began life as a point of sale solution, focusing on kind of small to medium businesses in Brazil. And as you would expect, it was called the square of Brazil. And actually, as reductive as that term is, is or as reductive as those terms can be, it's probably a lot more accurate than kind of the other comparisons that you do here being thrown around sometimes. Yeah. But just like Square, the company built upon that early success in point-of-sale business to launch a full suite of financial products to service their customers. So they brought in developer tools, they brought in kind of specialized products for micro-merchants, and they brought in built-in analytics, financial management, and then they even acquired a company recently that was focused entirely on retail management. And we know what the playbook is here. We've seen it with Square. We've seen it with plenty of other businesses that aren't even in the financial services space. You add functionality, you cross or upsell the solutions, and in doing so, you better embed yourself into your client's operations, and that increases your revenue per client and increases your stickiness. And all this stuff was working, or is so is working. The active clients, not including the micro merchants, are up forty five percent year over year to seven hundred and sixty six thousand. Their micro merchants were up ninefold for three hundred and thirty thousand. Total payments volumes of fifty eight percent, and now almost half of their clients are using more than one product. So they are. So this was a strategy that was perfectly working out for them. And if you look at the business like that. It looks everything's great. Yeah. Right? Really, everything is going very well. Now, the other half of the story, the bad news, the complex news, is that, of course, they also launched a financial wing called Stone Capital. And this is really where the problems are. Stone Capital basically made a massive belly flop. Um, <laughs> there's no other, there's really no other way to put it. To begin with, they had weak underwriting standards. And that is completely on them as a business. It was a mistake. They've acknowledged it was a mistake. They're taking moves to correct that mistake now. Secondly, they over-relied on a new registry system that was introduced to Brazil in June this year. Now, this was a system that essentially allows merchants to use the receivables as collateral for loans. There was a system in there before. That system was problematic, and this new system was supposed to fix it, but actually it's ended up making the problem much worse. And this is going to be fixed at some point. Again, so this is kind of one of those things where it's not entirely their fault, but they relied on it way more than they should have. Yeah. And, and essentially that they've got themselves into into problem. Thirdly, which is, you know, this is nothing they can do about this, is the pandemic. 
and the cycle of lockdowns that are happening in Brazil, which is obviously impacting small and medium-sized businesses much more than big businesses. And as we know, Stone Co. is very much tied to small and medium-sized businesses. So the company is expecting serious losses from its financial wing. They've stopped lending for six months in order to try and correct this. This did, like... If you look at it from a bigger picture, it's n like this is not the death of Stone Cold by any means. It's 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 a mistake. It's going to cost them big, but they've given themselves six months to try and correct it now, and they will correct it. And I think you're still looking at a business at the very very start of a huge huge market opportunity. Sixty eight percent of businesses in Brazil are don't even have an internet connection. That's how big this opportunity yeah. is for a player like Stone Cold. And I think if we're going to be long-term investors, we have to focus on what's this company going to look like in five to 10 years. If we're going to follow the stock price, you're going to get worried. Try and look at the business. Try and, and you know, it, I get it's complex. It's complex for me even reading it. I was like, what the hell is going on here when I read their press release? But, you know, the, it doesn't seem like it's going to be the death of the business. And I think investors are, are focusing in way too much on that side of things. It seems to me that kind of Stone Coast stock is kind of caught in one of those negative cycles too, that it's it's been trending down and now anything that comes out about it just pushes it down further and further. What's your perception of that? You know, in general, like the stock market mechanics that, you know, trend is your friend and that includes sometimes when it's going down, it's not your friend. Well, it's stuck in, the, it's stuck in what we talked about earlier, which is just this cycle of, of stocks being put down this is one of those earnings season where like no news was good was good news yeah. you know everything was bad people couldn't seem to find anything to 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 find optimistic about and that's just compounded the issue further yeah yeah do you think this could be a good opportunity if you if you wanted to open a position in stone co i think if you're i think if you're you've got a position in stone co if you've been interested in stone co i think this could be a very good opportunity to start buying shares in it. interesting Thanks for that, Rory. So let's move on then. And by the time this episode goes live, of course, it will be Black Friday. And of course, we still have some great deals for both the My Wall Street app and the Horizon service. For the next few days, you can get $30 off an annual My Wall Street subscription. That's a 30% total discount. Or you can get a whopping $150 off a Horizon subscription. Remember, My Wall Street is the only place where you can access our handpicked shortlist of stocks, as well as other great features like our first look reports we do on newly listed companies and daily analysis and commentary from the team on the market. Horizon, on the other hand, is where you get access to Emmett's personal portfolio and see everything he does with his own money, all the buys, all the sells, all the companies that have caught his eye and what his thoughts are on them. He actually just added a brand new stock to Horizon a couple of days ago. This is a company that is focused on solving one of the largest, most stressful and costly problems that affects as many as one in eight women in the US today. So there's no better time to join Horizon now to check that out. Both of these offers are available now, but only for a limited time, obviously. So make sure to follow the links in the notes for today's show and grab these deals before they're gone. Guys, we actually do have time for mailbag this week. And <laughs> because we missed last week's question, we're going to go back to it. So this question came in from, they call me Bushby. I don't think that's his real name on Instagram and I think it's something that we've answered a couple of times before but I'd be interested in hearing from both of you today on this considering the sell-off and some stocks that we've just talked about so the coffee Bushby asked how much emphasis do you put on share price when opening or adding to a position Rory you kind of answered that there with your analysis of Stone Co. Well first of all I put zero emphasis on share price which which by I mean nominal share price I don't know if call me Bushby meant share price or whether he meant the value of the stock the market cap because of course share price is pretty much pretty much meaningless the emphasis on the valuation of a business is something that of course we pay attention to nothing is worth infinite amount of money so you can't ever just go into purchasing a business but i'm like well i don't care about the valuation yeah what i don't do is i don't put too much emphasis on 
the short term share price. So what I always try and think about is where do I think the business is going to be in 10 years? And, you know, there's things called discounted cash flows, which a lot of investors use as a way of kind of measuring out, forecasting how a business is going to look over the next 10 years. And what you do is you just basically take their financial statements, you look at them, you try and establish trends and move them forward 10 years. And if you do them well, if you, you know, you can see very in-depth ones where, you know, there's eight different worksheets and changing one number on one creates this kind of beautiful waterfall where all the numbers change and it gets you down to a kind of two decimal place exact share price that it should be at. I definitely don't do that. I try and figure out is a range of possibilities where the business could be. And if I think the company is at a reasonable valuation compared to where I think it could be in 10 years, that's what I look at in investing in the business. I'll, like to give a good example of this, in 2007, the most widely optimistic Amazon bull on Wall Street predicted their revenue in 2020 would be $40 billion. Like <laughs> this was kind of guy was kind of laughed at, yeah. completely laughed at. Amazon would took in about $360 billion <laughs> that year, right? So, I mean, the, the share price and the valuation are all important things, but they pale in comparison to things like who the management is, what kind of, what kind of moat the company has, how much the customers love the, the business. All these things are, tell you much more about a business than the current share price. And you need to kind of build in that into your idea of what the company could be worth. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Marie? I was just going to say when we kind of pitch stocks within the analyst team to one another, like valuation just kind of gets bundled up into the other kind of key numbers section that we looked at. And I don't think we've ever rejected anything solely based on like valuation being too high, but it is kind of something that maybe I would personally look at in terms of like buying into companies that I already like. Yeah. We just kind of then within the context of maybe like the broader market or how kind of, I don't know, detached from reality we're all feeling. I think kind of before we had that big sell-off towards the end of January and February, there were a lot of stocks that seemed to be trading very, very highly. And, you know, I would never kind of add to a position that I had when valuation seems to have gone up substantially. But yeah, I'd be the same with Rory. When it comes to long-term investing, it's not really something you need to overly consider in terms of thinking about if I hold this stock for 20 years, is it going to be an issue? Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. I hope that answers your question. They call me Bushby. That's uh, definitely one of the best names we've got in so far. So folks, let's finish out today with the elevator pitch. And I've just realized that I missed such a massive opportunity considering it's Thanksgiving and Black Friday. And I didn't ask you guys to pick a Thanksgiving or Black Friday stock like the Halloween one, which was obviously such a success. But yeah, I just threw the doors open. I, I want to know what companies you guys are looking at at the moment. Rory, I'll come to you first. I'm currently looking at a stock that is way, way, way outside my circle of competence. Um, Always a good so start. Please, anyone listening, don't don't take what <laughs> I'm about to say as any sort of investment advice. But of course, part of investing is learning about different businesses, and this is kind of one of those things that I'm doing. I'm learning about a new business. It's a it's a company called GitLab, which is a DevOps platform that allows users to develop, secure, and operate software in a single application. It's a company that just went public back in October. The stock was doing pretty well until basically the last two weeks, which as we've discussed, have been tough for software in particular, but it's still at a $14 billion valuation. The company's got $223 million run rate, 69% year over year growth, 3,500 base customers with really high dollar based retention. I think it's 152% or something, nearly 400 customers spending over $100,000 a year. And what's interesting about this business for me is that ever since it was founded in 2014, it's been a company completely centered on remote work. So they've never had like an office essentially where there are 1,350 employees 
all work remotely. Wow. They're in 65 countries all over the world. And so and I think that's kind of apt because it's a company that's kind of empowering remote work too. So it's it's a kind of future of work kind of play. Okay, cool. Anne-Marie, what about yourself? I have Rent the Runway, okay. um, which I believe just IPO'd this week with the ticker symbol Rent. They basically allow consumers to rent, subscribe, or buy designer apparel and, and accessories. Many of them are like secondhand and vintage. And this is a space that we have previously talked about that I'm very interested in. And both me and Rory are like trying to find the ideal stock for this space. We've talked about like Poshmark and Real Real and ThreadUp and, and those type of things. So it's nice to see like another company be added in. Also, if you guys read the overview of this industry that I wrote a couple months ago that was in app one of the things i hit off of was kind of the best way to go about this for investors is to kind of target the high-end designer side yeah. of secondhand clothing because it's just kind of the most sustainable in terms of valuation of items and, and revenue and that sort of thing so i am interested in rent the runway like i like the concept of the business the issue i kind of have with it just from an initial look at their financials is it seems to be somewhat of an ipo of opportunity okay. just a little bit they seemed to, they had a really hard 2020 coming into 2021 because of the pandemic there was a significant slowdown in terms of people renting because they seem to be very much occasional wear you know you'd be going to a party or a wedding and you want to wear a really nice dress rent a really nice dress and i yeah i think they're just trying to get some kind of funds that being said i'm not all the way through the s1 so we will see what everything looks like in the end and i'll maybe write a first look on it for next week that's a nice teaser should yeah. Uh, do they own the clothes that they rent or do you do they facilitate you renting clothes from somebody else? I think they like acquire. Yeah, I think they acquire them. Yeah. But then I think they also do a facilitation. I don't know. <laughs> Let me go on the website right now. You'll have to tune in next week for the first look to find yeah. out. So that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at mywallstreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us. And don't forget to leave a review or a rating on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today. And from the three of us, happy Thanksgiving. And we'll talk to you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.